and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And in his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars. And the kingdom had rest under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, and the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord had given him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours, because we've sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. So ends God's, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise you for your word, and I ask you, Lord, I stand here, Father, trembling, Because this is your word and these are your people that need to hear it. I pray, Father, that through my weakness you will be made strong. And I pray, Father, that my words will fall to the ground that yours, Lord, will accomplish the thing where you have sent it. Father, make yourself to be known, your will to be known. Exhort your people, teach them, bring them to repentance if need be, Father, and encourage them in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I think everyone either has one or knows of someone who has one. It's that little drawer in the kitchen called the junk drawer. It's that little drawer that usually is found near the kitchen sink, usually to the right or to the left, in which we put in, you know, various and sundry things that we're not quite sure where it came from, where it belongs. They don't really have a home, but we put it there, you know, just in case. Well, pretty soon that junk drawer gets a little tough to close because it gets overblown. And then we start taking those things out and we put them into other tubs. And and then those get stacked up a little bit. And we decide to take those tubs and put them somewhere else. And usually it's another room. So we open the door to the room and there we put those tubs. And eventually that becomes the place where we put those various and sundry things that really don't have a home. We're not sure where they came from, but we put them there, you know, just in case. Well, pretty soon that, draw, that door becomes very tough to close and those boxes start creeping out into the hallway and from the hallway they end up into the living room, the dining room, the kitchen and they get higher and higher and higher and pretty, mo- pretty much the junk drawer that became a junk room has now become a full-fledged junk house. By that time things have gone out of control and now they have reality shows that talk about these things and it's called Hoarders. Now, in that show, Hoarders, however, they, they come into these houses in which people have, have, have these, these, these overwhelming amounts of junk in their homes that they themselves have become a part of. They've, they've kind of become almost a piece of this stuff that's, that's piled up, and they don't even notice it anymore. In fact, there might be bacteria growing up, and people stop coming over to the house because there's some odors that come in, and 
they don't even notice the odors anymore because you become kind of nose blind to those things. And then, however, there's the danger that those very bacteria might even bring sickness and sometimes even death. Well, in hoarders, they'll bring in the show hoarders, they'll bring in a psychiatrist and they'll also bring in a, a professional organizer to come in and help them to get their lives in order. However, before they can even get that far, they have to bring in a huge dumpster, bring it to the front of the house, plop it in the driveway, and everything in the side of the house has got to get out and it's got to go. It's got to get out of the house, reassessed, reevaluated, and in the dumpster it goes to get tossed out. They have to clean house. Now, in our lives, in, in, in folks' lives, that seems to happen. We have our hearts, and in our hearts we might have a little compartment in our house where we put various and sundry sins or various and sundry attitudes that we kind of keep in there. And we, we're not sure where they came from. We're not sure why they're there. They don't really have a home, but we keep them there, you know, just in case. And they could be perhaps uh, bitterness or some, sometimes anxiety or sometimes uh, it could be even those little secret acceptable sins that we might keep there. Well, eventually those sins can overtake you and they can build up and fill you up and pretty much you see that relationships start getting broken because people don't want to get near you anymore. You find yourself broken away from the church and such junk inside of our hearts could even produce spiritual sickness or even spiritual death. Well, here in our text this morning, we, we see King Asa the king of Judah, and he begins cleaning house. And we're going to see in this text what he saw, the junk that he saw, the, the reasons that he came, the reasons why he had to clean house and what happens after he started cleaning house. Now, this is not a sermon on how to take care of your house and keep it clean, mind you. This is a sermon that hopefully will encourage you to see the Christian life as a life of repentance and faith and constant reformation. That there's, that there's mercy and that God will do that for you just as he did it for the children of Israel here. We begin with a little bit of background. Now, Asa is in Judah and he sees idolatry everywhere. There's junk all around. He has to be able to see this junk. And that junk, just like in hoarders' homes, doesn't happen overnight. It comes in, in stages. It comes over time. And it happened in his generation. He had a heritage of junk that was building up over time. You see, Israel used to be a united kingdom at this time. You had the kingdom of Israel. David was the, first, was the second king after Saul, but he was the, the gold standard for the kings of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, he wasn't perfect, but his heart's projection, his heart's trajectory was always one of that of repentance and faith. Even when he fell, we read in Psalm 51, Oh, Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Forgive me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. His, his heart was always pointed towards God. That was the gold standard. In fact, all of the kings after him in the line of Judah would be measured by that standard, you see. Now, God had made David a promise. He said that to him, he would give him, always have a, a, a man sitting on the throne, and he would be to him a father, and that man would be to him as a son. That was a picture and a promise to, to, to David himself, which also pictured what God would ultimately do with Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate king of kings from the line of Judah, who sits now on the throne, 
and is the perfect king, and he would never give that up. And he can't never give that up because he is our Lord and Savior. But there were, so that was the promise that was ultimately going to be fulfilled in that covenant that he made to David. But there was an immediate, uh, an immediate fulfillment of that as well in his son Solomon. Now, David had a boy named Solomon, and Solomon grew up to be the, one of the wisest kings, the wisest men, as it were, ever. He was, a, he was the wisest man ever. However, he started very well. In fact, he, his first line of duty when he, was building the, when he was asked by God in a vision, and God asked him, what do you want me to give to you? He said, I am but a child. I don't know how to handle these people. I need your wisdom. God, grant me wisdom. And the Lord said to him, since you did not ask me for your enemies, since you didn't ask me for riches or any of that, I'm going to give you what you asked for, wisdom and all those things as well. Solomon was very wise and he began his reign well because he began asking God for direction. However, that only lasted until he got a little bit older. One of the things that Solomon had to do, and this is some of the junk that started going into the junk drawer of Israel, was that he started trying to expand his kingdom by making alliances through marriage with other nations. He had 300 wives, if you can count that, 700 concubines. That's a thousand women at that point. I can't even imagine how that works. But the Bible tells us that because of these wives, he had, they had turned his heart away from serving the living God, and he did wickedly. He built up all of these shrines to the Moabite and the Amorite gods and created high places all throughout Jerusalem, peppered them all over the place. The drunk drawer has become full. And, that, and thus begins this hoarder's house of idolatry. God had been angry with, with Solomon and said, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to your servant. And he did. Through Solomon's son Rehoboam, who was a younger man, the next in line after Solomon died, Rehoboam began as a young man, a weak young man. Rather than starting like his dad did, asking God for advice, as it were, for wisdom, he started asking his peers for advice. And he took the advice of what we might consider the equivalent of frat brothers trying to teach you how to be a good godly husband. That didn't work out very well, and he'd ended up becoming a very cruel king that ended up splitting the kingdom. Ten tribes going to the north, whose king was Jeroboam, and their center of worship was Samaria, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south. Their center of, of uh, their capital was Jerusalem. And that's where Rehoboam reigned. And what did he do? Did he do any better? No, he just kept on doing what the father did. He kept filling up the drawer. And he made the people of Judah do even worse than the people that had lived in that area before them, the Canaanites, doing all kinds of more and multiplied idolatry. The junk drawer can't be closed. Now it becomes a junk room in Judah. And then from there, come uh, Rehoboam passes away. He dies, sleeps with his father, and then comes Abijah. And that's where our scripture picks up. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son, Asa, reigned in his place. Verse 1 tells us that, Ab that uh, Abijah had died now, and he slept with his father. Abijah's reign was no better than Rehoboam. The junk drawer not only became a junk house, but Abijah passively allowed it to continue to do it, to continue to grow. He didn't take out those high places, he kept them there. 
His heart, the Bible tells us, was not wholeheartedly toward, devoted to the Lord as his father David was. In fact, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, in the divided kingdom of Israel, of the 19 kings in the, in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, not a one was any good. And out of the 20 that came out in the kingdom, in the kingdom of Judah, eight turned out to be assessed as being doing what was good and right in the sight of the Lord their God. And this is how Asa was assessed, interestingly enough. However, why? You see, this pattern of foolishness, one would expect, would continue. It happened with Solomon. It went to Rehoboam, and it continued with Abijah. That heritage should continue. That unfaithfulness should continue to the next generation, shouldn't it? After all, aren't we a product of what we've been raised with? Aren't we stuck with what we have? Abijah's reign, though summarized as being less than stellar, there were little points, as it were, of God's mercy. Because God had mercy on Judah because of the promises that God had made to David. Ultimately, Judah itself and all of Israel would fall and go into captivity. None of the stuff would last forever, which was kind of sad there. But there were those little points of grace and some examples of victory and repentance. And Abijah had one of those. He had a, there was a war between, a civil war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they bashed and they would fight with each other all the time. And Jeroboam wanted to attack Abijah and Abijah said, don't do this. And he called, and, they, and Judah called out to the, to the Lord for help. And the Lord won a victory over the northern kingdom to such an extent that it diminished the power of that kingdom for quite a long time. That's why it says that Asa, that, it says that Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And in his days, the land had rest for 10 years. That rest, that pause, that moment of that breather room came because of what happened in that war with Abijah. It was something that was bequeathed to Asa because of God's grace. However, Asa's ancestors had left him a legacy of unfaithfulness and, or at the very least, a very inconsistent devotion to God. That heritage was slowly piling up and it was piling up junk righteousness and junk religion and junk idolatry in Judah. Now, the Lord had provided rest. But then it said, it says as well, that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Well, well hold on a minute. We've got junk drawer, junk room, and then all of a sudden we, we pivot and we've got a king who sees that there's junk there. He didn't become a part of that junk like his, like his father did before him. What made the difference? What was different about Asa that was not the same about, that, that kept kind of creeping over with the, with the other fathers and grandfathers that he had? What made the difference? Was uh, maybe Asa wiser? Uh, Maybe Asa had a better personality. Maybe he was smarter. Yeah. Maybe he was just uh, built differently. I would contend that there was nothing different with Asa. There was nothing in Asa that made the difference. It was something outside of Asa 
that made the difference. You see, it says, the scripture says he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now, what is good? What is right? Where do we come from? Where does that come from? Where does that idea come from? Well, goodness is that which aligns with God's good moral character, with his moral character. What is straight aligns with God's standard. Whatever is good is exactly what God himself is. Jesus was asked oh, by, the, uh, by the rich young ruler, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately pivots and says, why do you call me good? And he said, only God is good. So we know that only God is good. And then Jesus is called the good shepherd. And Jesus, we know, is God incarnate. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and what? Goodness. The Trinity is good. The entire Godhead is the standard of good. Anything that we measure by has to be measured by God. If anything that Asa did was considered good, it had to be good because it was good because it lined up with God's standard. Now, why would he do that for that matter? I would contend. That the reason was not in him, but was in God. God had done something to Asa. It was a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Asa lacked what we lack. And that was true righteousness. And he needed to get it from somewhere. His heritage was our heritage. And that's the heritage of the first Adam. All that we can get from the first Adam was his corrupt nature. He needed a new nature. He, wasn't, he might have been a nice guy, but he wasn't a good guy. There is a difference between being nice and being good, you know. You know, being nice is, uh, you know, I know a lot of nice guys that will not get the kingdom of God because they can't see it. But only the good, those that have been given the grace of God, are the ones that will enter the kingdom of heaven. We are corrupted in spite of any goodness that we have. We need the righteousness that comes by one and one means only, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only he has the inherent perfect righteousness that we need. Only he is intrinsically good. Only he could pay for our sins and only he could be the perfect substitute. The Bible tells us the only thing that we have outside of him is truth suppression syndrome. We have junk, Adam junk, that needs to be taken out. But because of the good grace of Jesus, we have a new nature. We've been given a new, ta- a new nature. God grants those who believe and trust in him, his elect people, a brand new nature. Because of that cross, because of the blood, he bathed us and cleaned, and cleaned us up and, and dressed, up in the ro- dressed us in the robe of his son. When God smells us, you know, we no longer reek of death, but we are the fragrance of his son, sweet and a swelling aroma. The Bible tells us we must be born from above. The difference for Asa was he had to have been born 
from above in order to do what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord because he had to be able to see the junk and you cannot see the junk unless you have eyes that can see. And Jesus said that unless a man is born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. When he, the uh, Westminster uh, gives us a little bit of insight here. And this is called the effectual calling. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, or I'm sorry, the larger catechism says to us, what is the effectual calling? The effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect, and from nothing in them, nothing in them, moving him thereunto, he doth, in his accepted time, invite and draw them through Jesus Christ by his word and spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so they are thereby made willing and able to freely answer his call and accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed to them. But then we would ask, well, wait, wait, well, wait a minute, Jesus would not be born and died, but like 900 and some out, almost a thousand years later. How can Asa that far in the past even embrace Christ to be able to be regenerated? Well, the scripture tells us that the saints of old were saved just as we are by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is a gift from God. If you can imagine a timeline in which you have your saints of the Old Testament and you have your saints of the New Testament, that would be us. And then in the center of that line, you have a cross. We see by grace the cross fully lit. And we're able to see the face of Christ. And we're able to believe and cling to that cross and cling to the one on it. They would see it from behind as a shadow. And they would cling to that same cross because of the promises that God had made them about that Messiah. The Westminster also helps us with that. It says, how is the covenant of grace administered to the Old, in the Old Testament? The covenant of grace, in question 34 says, was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecy, sacrifices, and circumcision, the Passovers, and other types and ordinances, which God did foresignify Christ then to come and were by that time sufficient to, listen, build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they then had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. The Old Testament saints were regenerated and saved the same way the New Testament saints are, by faith and by the grace of God. And that is a gift from God. We are not slaves to our heritage, God can bring dead sinners to life. And he does so by his sovereign grace. Have you been born from above? Asa was regenerated. Have you been regenerated? The word regenerated is simple. Re means again and generation means to bring to life. Have you been brought back to life from the dead? If not if you feel that you need to accept Christ and you feel the pull of Jesus Christ, there's something going on. Come to the Savior. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have been regenerated, what heritage are you leaving to your kids? Brothers, I'll tell you, in my life, I did not have the benefit of a solid foundational Christian heritage. Mine was very sporadic at best. But God, out of his own grace, called me out of darkness into his light. And I praise him and thank him for his grace. And just to be a little bit selfish, I have a little grandbaby. And my little grandbaby's named Eugene. And do you know what Eugene means? The first part of his name means good. You, you. Second part of his name means generation. God has granted the gift of a good generation. And he can do that out of his sovereign grace. And he can do that for you. That's hope. You're not stuck with what you have because God can make all things new. For if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is what? A new creation. Now we move on real quick to verse 3. And I promise you, this is, the, this is a long section, yes, but I promise you the next two sections will be at least as long. So hold on. All right. So strap in. We continue with looking on what happens after a person's regenerated, when they're brought back to life by the Spirit of God, what does that person do when they see the junk? When you're in that house and you see the junk, what do you want to do? The dumpster comes out. We want a clean house. And that's what Asa did. He says, look at what he did. He took away, look at those verbs, he took away the foreign altars and the high places. He broke down the pillars. He cut down the asherim. He was in a major breaking and doing radical steps of repentance. He says, look, I see this, these high places. High places were just elevations that were made as a worship area. He was tearing down all of the false worship centers that there were here in Judah. He was just taking them down. They're there. That's got to go. And he says, it, it says that the word that he uses is that he, he took him away. He, he uh, made them of none effect anymore. He says, let's get these things out of here. The next word he broke away means he smashed those things. He broke them to pieces. And the other one tore down the asharim. The asharim were these, was, was a grove of trees, or they were pillars that were made to look like trees in order to worship the goddess of happiness named Asherah. Well, he's like, no, that's not the kind of happiness I want. It's out of here. And he cut those things down and crushed them. They sound very drastic. They sound very exclusive. But imagine, brothers and sisters, you're in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is the temple of the living God that was built. And there's where true worship was. And peppered around this true worship is all this false worship. And people aren't going just to the temple, but they're going up here and doing things sometimes in the name of the true God, which ultimately is idolatry. And he would have had none of it. A heart that's been regenerated will have none of it. A heart that sees that this is the true God, I don't want a counterfeit. I don't want a faker. What do I want? A a pillar that says it's a tree when it's not, that purports to give me happiness, but all it's going to do is give me rottenness. I want to go to the true God. That's what a regenerated heart sees and desires. And it does radical steps in repentance. 
to get those things out. It is not an easy task. If you've ever watched this, that show Hoarders, when they're taking the things out of the house, the person inside of the house is getting trembly because these are things that they're used to. But they have to go. We have to clean house. These things have got to get out. We have to do a hard examination, see where, our, where those idols are inside of us and wrench them out even if they hurt. What are those things that give me comfort? What are those things that I cannot live without? The math equation is easy. Pastor Kurt mentioned it last week. I'll mention it to you again. Whatever, if I don't have X, I can't be happy. Solve for X. And whatever that X is, that X has got to go. Will it be easy? No, it shouldn't be. After all, it's a part of you now. You've got to break that thing away from you. Those secret sins that you have inside your heart have to be gathered up and tossed and smashed and tossed into the fire. But it takes time sometimes as well. But there has to be a beginning step a realization, an identification of what that sin is. You have to take and, and identify those secret sins. Identify the junk that's going on inside of you. It could be a problem with lust. Lust that never acts itself out, but just stays in the head. Jesus said, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. It could be uh, cheating on your taxes, perhaps, just a little bit. Taking a deduction you ain't supposed to. List the commandments of God and see where you measure up and you'll find out that we are woefully low from being able to measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. But he has mercy. He points those things out. Uh, James chapter 1, uh, 1 verse 21 excuse me, tells us, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. What else did Asa do? He commanded the people to seek the Lord and keep the commandments. See, when you repent, the idea of repentance is turning away from something. It's 180 degrees. 360 brings you right back to the beginning. You turn away from that, but you can't turn away from your sin and towards nothing because you'll end up going to whatever attracted you before. So he says to them, turn and seek the Lord your God, the God of your fathers. Notice he said the God of your fathers. Again, Not the fake one, but seek the Lord, Yahweh, the real one. And keep the law and his commandments. Because that's where the truth is, in the law and his commandments. Seek the Lord and seek his standards. And do so by faith. How do we seek the Lord? By setting your, seeking the Lord, I mean, it's not all that difficult to understand the concept. You're looking for something intently. Your eyeballs are set towards looking for the thing you need. I was looking for my wallet this morning, and I was seeking that thing desperately because I couldn't get here without it. My license is in it. So my eyes were all focused in looking to see that little shape, that little part, that little thing that would reflect where my wallet was. It ended up it was in my car, but I found it. 
because I was seeking it with intensity. We seek the Lord because we want the Lord, so we seek him in his word because his word is true. That's where you're going to find where his heart and his mind and his thought. You seek the Lord in his word. You seek him by prayer because you want the Lord to be effective in your life. You want the Lord, and he sought us, so we therefore seek him. And if we seek him, he promises we, he will be found by us. We do so by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who believe in him, those who seek the Lord must first believe that he exists and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. After he had encouraged the people to go and after he had encouraged the people to seek the Lord, it says that he continued, the verse 5 tells us that he continued the work. And he took out all the other high places that were in Judah and the incense places. There was to be no place where the temptation to go back to the old ways would be there. A regenerated life cannot tolerate continual spiritual depravity. A born-again person cannot tolerate but will and desires and will repent of the sins in their life continually. And even if they crop back up, they will turn away from their sins. Is there anything that you might tolerate in your heart? Can you identify those high places? Will you intentionally take some time this week to intentionally open the word of God and pray? You seek a brother out to pray with you. If it's really tough, you seek some, one of your brothers in the, home, in the house of the Lord to pray with you. Open the word, because therein is your salvation. Because if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Now he moves on to verses 6, through, uh, six and 7, where we see Asa protecting the house. And this, to me, is Reformation. Uh, he, what, what does Asa do? He built, after tearing down, breaking down, putting things off and cutting things out, he builds. He built fortified cities in Judah. For the land had rest. There was no rest in the Lord. The Lord had given him peace. You know, if you read this passage, you'll see that concept of rest kind of peppered throughout there. In a couple of verses, you'll see it that he was given rest. The kingdom had rest. And here, it brings the concepts together that there were no war in those land. The land had rest. There was no wars for the Lord had given them peace. And then he says to Judah, he says, let us build these cities. Notice what he says. He said, let us build. He didn't say, I'm going to build. He said, let us take responsibility for building and reforming the land and reforming, getting these things out and fortifying what we have here. He admitted that it was God was the one that given him peace. He said, for the Lord has given us peace. And he has given us peace all around. Why did they have that space and that pause? I would suggest that one of the reasons they would receive that, that grace of peace at that moment was to give them time to repent. Scripture tells us that uh, God is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He gives us space to repent. 
The fact that you're breathing right now and you're hearing me right now says that God is giving you space to repent if you have not. Or if you are not, you have space to repent. So do so. Therefore, that peace and that time that you have that the Lord, when he does give you rest, you see that Asa used it wisely. He used it to build. He reformed the place. Reformation is a life of faith. Living by faith is constant reformation, constant changing. Not what you believe, but rebuilding up and fortifying because you know what you believe. Notice the things that that he built up. He says, let us build these cities and surround them with what? Walls, towers, gates, and bars. Now, walls defined kind of give you an identity to the city. It gives you an area so you know who's in the kingdom and who's outside of the kingdom. So those walls were necessary. Know what you believe and why you believe it. As a church, we have to have walls to know what is a true believer and what is not. And the gates are the entranceways of that city. And that controls who comes into the city and who comes out of the city. And and for our city of God, there's one gate, and that gate is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the gate. Anyone who comes to me must come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It gives us boundaries. It gives us an identity makes us ready to give a defense. He also says that he built towers. And what were these towers for in a city? Well, towers were meant for protection. It was meant for being able to be alert because there would be somebody at the watchtower looking out to see what was going on and warning the people. And if you didn't warn the people, you were going to be in trouble. When trouble came, that was your job to warn. The job of the pulpit, of the, of the minister of the gospel, is to warn and exhort the people and let them know of the truths of God. And when there's danger, and exhort them to run to safety, to run to the harms of their, of their Lord and God. Ezekiel chapter 33, 7 says, So you, son of man, I'd made you a watchman. Isaiah said, Isaiah 62 said, I have set watchmen on your walls to let you know when the dangers come. So the, we see that um, it, it, it makes me remember and understand the fact that God wants us to fortify our faith by faith, day by day and constantly. The bars remind us that those bars were these um, protective structures that were within the walls that connected themselves to the gate. So if the bars weren't solid, the, the gates themselves could fall apart. And these bars, however, that were in there were, were so important. And what we have as bars within the community of believers is the word of God, which is flawless, cannot break. And we also have the people of God as bars to keep us safe in our faith. Not neglecting the the assembling together of yourselves, Hebrews 10.25, as is the habit of some. And in the church, the Lord has also given us other bars to help and protect us, and those are the word and sacrament. 
in Westminster uh, Catechism, it says the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to service to God and in Christ according to his word. This is a visible sign of what Christ has done for us in the waters of baptism by confirming the covenant with us, something he did for us. The table, when we have the table, reminds us of what Jesus did for us. These are bars to our faith. These are supports to our faith. This is keeping the house clean and keeping the house from becoming a junk house again. There is a blessing in seeking the Lord. The scripture says that they prospered. That means they moved forward towards success. They continued that, that those steps towards reformation within the city gates. God has taken responsibility for your soul, believer. He said in Philippians what? I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ. He said, Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, for those whom God foreknew, Romans 8 says, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son so that we would be, he would be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined. He also called and those he called, he also justified and those he justified, he also glorified. He's taken responsibility for us to be with us as we walk daily in sanctification and shoring up and fortifying our faith. Reformation is a life of readiness and it's a life of continued grabbing the word of God and saturating yourself in it. And look what he had. Look what Asa ended up having here. He had a strong army that was alert. He had an army of 300,000 from Judah armed with large shields and spears. It's kind of 300,000 men for long distance, for a short distance fighting and with little pikes that they might be able to stab the other guys. And then you had 280 from Benjamin who carried shields, didn't say large, but smaller shields, so that seems like up close and personal fighting. But they also drew bows to be able to hit long distance. But the key here for me was that they were all mighty men of valor. These men were ready to fight, and these men were ready to protect. It says all, the entire section tells us about fortification, building up, and protection of the cities of Judah. You see, because the enemy is always at the door waiting for an opportunity to attack. What do we have? The culture. I mean, just read the news. We got the culture coming after us. You got the flesh. That's intrinsic. You got that coming after you. And the devil using all those little pieces in order to attack the kingdom and the people of God. A clean house that can't be just left empty. We have to remain alert and bold. 
with the word of God and truth. Asa's army was prepped and ready. So we have to be prepped and ready. This is a spiritual war. Reforming and maintaining your faith is spiritual warfare. But we fight from God's high ground. We fight from the high ground of faith. And from the high ground of our king. King Jesus. So diligently. Diligent word oriented reformation is required to maintain a vigorous faith. A uh, Franz Lambert, a reformer from the 15th century out in uh, Switzerland, says, quote, All that is deformed ought to be reformed. The word of God alone teaches us that ought to be so. And all reform effective otherwise is in vain. So how do we reform and maintain our faith by the word of God? How is your intake of God's word? What priority does the study of God's word take in your life right now? Are you willing to kind of step it up a little bit? Maybe add a couple of extra verses. Maybe trying to memorize God's word and get yourself saturated into God's word to fortify your faith. Coming to church in worship, fighting the spiritual war with your brothers and sisters. Cleaning house can be difficult and it sometimes can be shocking, but it is well worth it. If we were to summarize this, we would say that good King Asa rids Judah of idolatry and builds up his city. It's a very simple story. It's the story of how he cleaned up his house, pictures how the Christian life is one of repentance and faith, turning away from sin and turning to the Jesus as the Redeemer. We remember that through regeneration, God can redeem any her- every and any heritage. Through repentance, that new life cannot tolerate sin, It all has to go. And in Reformation, the new life is required diligent, word-oriented, reassessing, reevaluated, and building up in support. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. But behold, he has made all things New. May he who has ears let them hear what God says to the churches. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,